Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Good morning, everybody. How are we today? It is the last week in January, so we are wrapping up our series in spiritual disciplines this year. You know, if you would have told me when I was any age before I had kids that I would actually look forward to a conversation about discipline, I would have looked at you and said, no way. But I, I love these chats. We've been talking about the discipline, the practice, the, the rhythms of fasting and feasting. The last couple weeks were about fasting. This week is about feasting. And so before we get into it, I want to define it again so we're on the same page because some of us come in with different baggage. When we talk about discipline, in no way is it a, a, a course for us to do more so God loves us more. In no way is it a requirement for Jesus to be all that you need or for you to show up at CBC. We're not going to check to make sure you fasted next Sunday before you get in the door. Why we talk about these things is because we fundamentally believe that these practices that we see in the scripture help us become more like Jesus. Our definition of spiritual disciplines is that they are a way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing hearts. They are tools in our pursuit of Jesus. And so when we talk about Sabbath or feasting or fasting or praying or simplicity or silence or solitude like we have, they're an invitation. They're an invitation that we might come together and pursue Christ together. And it's going to look different for different people, and that's just what grace is. That's what life is. So today is an invitation when we talk about feasting to ask the question, how does this practice work in my life? And what will it give me as I try and be more Christ-like each and every day? But before we do that, if you're new to CBC, we take a bit of time at the beginning and we reset expectations. We, we fundamentally assume that we come into this place from a culture that is largely revolving around criticism and um, in every single way uh, a form of us to look at what's wrong with things. And in this place where God is where we are, in this place we shift our mindset and we simply ask that instead of trying to find fault in criticism, we try and find where the Holy Spirit's working. And we ask the question this morning, where is God speaking into my life? We become contributors to the conversation of faith, not critics of it. And so before we dive into some text this morning, we're just going to take some time and I'm going to pray, ask you to pray if you're comfortable, that you might hear from God today. You might hear from the Holy Spirit today, whether you are a professional feaster, which most of us in this country are, spoiler alert, or you don't know what it is. And that we might hear from God so that we might show the world the goodness of God. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here. As Andy talked about, just worshiping with people that make Jesus a priority. I'm thankful that we can come to this space either physically or online and, and just reset our priorities around what's good and worthy. So I, I pray that happens this morning. That as we talk about uh, the discipline of feasting Holy Spirit, that you speak to us through your word, that you show us where the goodness of God is, and that you show us how we can then go and do as we look more like Jesus every day. So if you're comfortable, I'd just ask that you take a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might do a work in your spirit this morning.
Let's ask you to pray for me that God might use the preparation not to see a message or a man, but to point to ultimately his gospel and his goodness and how we together can show our community and our world what they need, which is more of the goodness of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said... Amen. It was a couple of years ago, and I was tooling around online. If you don't know, if I haven't convinced you of it yet, I am a very large foodie, and all that means is I put too much time and emphasis on good food. I had a friend come over yesterday, and he just started his journey into sous vide. If you don't know what that is, it's because I'm a foodie, and I'd probably talk for 15 minutes on why I love it, right? You can Google it. And, and he was kind of blown away at the passion I had for good food. I found this poem to strawberries, and it took me aback. It was. It was this whole poem on like the beauty of the strawberry. And I was thinking, yeah, I mean, they're fine, but that's not in the top three of my fruit selection, you know? And, 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 I, and I read when it was written, and it was sometime in the 19th century, 1800s, and I thought to myself, oh, he's writing this poem because there was a time before me when you couldn't get strawberries whenever you wanted. There was a time before me when strawberry season was about two weeks long, and you only had those two weeks to enjoy this fruit, and when they were gone, they were gone. The only thing I know that's like that now is Thin Mints, and it's in full swing, Girl Scout season, you know, (laughs) which is why I'm like, I got to buy all the boxes, everybody. We, We live in a culture of radical abundance. We live in a culture, when we talk of the idea of feasting, feasting is not foreign to who we are as a people. And look, I I don't have to go outside of our country to make that point. I don't have to say this is the average food size in Uganda. I can just come to our states. If you look at how food, how abundance, how feasting is grown simply in our country, you can see that we know what it's like to feast. So for example, in the documentary Super Size Me, this dude for a month just ate McDonald's. And and, and part of it (laughs) did not go well for his body. But in, in part of it at the beginning, he talks about the portion sizes of McDonald's and how they've grown. This is in, I think, the early 2000s. He says in 1955, McDonald's hamburger was 3.7 ounces. Now most of them are 7 to 9 ounces each. He said the fries in the mid-50s were 2.4 ounces. That's smaller than a small you can get now. Most fries at McDonald's are 6 ounces. And he said, this is my favorite. You get a drink at McDonald's, if you got a Coke, it was 7 ounces. That's the only thing you can get. Now you can get a 30-ounce supersized drink at McDonald's. There's a study that came out, and it researched 60,000 Americans from the University of North Carolina, and it, and it looked at our food and portion sizes. It says that over the last 20 years, 30 years, hamburgers has, have expanded by 23%. A plate of Mexican food is 27% bigger. Soft drinks have increased in size by 52%. And snacks, whether they be potato chips, pretzels, or crackers, are 60% larger. Now, here's a stat that we can all probably understand. Penn State did a study, and it talked about our understanding of, our consumption of food based on our bigger portion size, and it said that they got all these volunteers in a room, and they gave them mac and cheese each and every day. And each day, they slowly increased the size of the mac and cheese. And you know what they found? They found that larger portion size means people eat more. Shocking. The the study quotes, I like this, it didn't matter if it was a man or a woman, dieters or non-dieters, people who were overweight or not, people who habitually clean their plates or not. They said everyone responded to the increased portion size by eating more. On average, the volunteers ate 30% more from a five-cup portion of mac and cheese than from a serving of half its size. They said the most astounding thing was that perhaps more troubling was that most of the volunteers never even noticed that the portion sizes were getting larger. 
in the first place. So we talk about feasting. And we have to understand the culture that we come from is a culture of feasting. It's what we naturally do. So my question this morning is, if we live in a culture that feasts every day, have we lost the purpose of what feasting was supposed to be in the Bible? If every day is a feast, is one really ever? But my question this morning is simply, what is the purpose and place of feasting in a culture that seemingly does really well with feasting? Have we lost why God designed them to be implemented? And then, what do we lose as we pursue Christ if we don't see feasting as God does? This is not a sermon to say eat less. That is not this at all. I'm not the guy to get up here and say that. This is a sermon to say there was a rhythm of feasting in the Old Testament and even in the New, and why? And in a culture that feasts really well and naturally, maybe we've lost some of the purpose behind it. And in that, lost our ability to see the goodness of God. So to dive into feasting this morning, we got to go to that book that everybody knows and loves, Leviticus, everybody, all right? Leviticus lays out, there were seven feasts in the Hebrew calendar. It's laid out in Leviticus 23. You can go there if you want to. I'm not going to read the whole thing because we got a parent dedication of some friends of mine at the end of the service, and I want you to be here for that. Um, But Leviticus 23 lays out the seven different kinds of feasts in the Old Testament. It starts like this. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, These are the Lord's appointed times. You must proclaim as my holy assembly, as my holy appointed times. What he's saying is there are times in your calendar year that you will set aside simply to recognize my goodness feasting. There were three in the spring and there were four in the fall. It starts with Passover and then you get the feast of unleavened bread, first fruits and then weeks or what we call Pentecost. And then there's a break for a few months. And on the beginning of the seventh month, which was kind of their new school year, if you want to frame it like that, after the harvest season, you had three more. You had the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So here's what we know, is that God seemingly sets aside time for them to feast, to party, if you will. And he cares about it. You know how I know he cares about it? He tells them to give money towards it. So the Old Testament tithing system had three different kinds of tithes. You gave to the Levitical clan, the priests, if you will. You gave to the poor. And then you set aside part of your tithe to go to parties. You really did. All in all, it was like 23.3%, give or take. So if you're a 10%, give or kidding, right? But, but, but really what it did was it showed God's value of celebration. And I love what Deuteronomy 14 says. talks about this tithe of celebration and feasting. Moses writes and says, when God blesses you, if the place where he chooses to locate Uh, is too far in the distance, you may convert the tithe into money. So what he's doing is saying that, hey, you're going to travel for these parties, and if it's too far away, you can take that tithe, you can get some cash out of it, and then it'll, it'll, it'll help you go. And then he says in verse 26, then you may spend the money however you wish, for cattle, for sheep, for wine, for beer, or whatever you desire. You and your household may eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and enjoy it. This conversation about feasting is a conversation about enjoyment and celebration in the goodness of God all woven into one. And, and it's not one that just happens in the Old Testament. Jesus carried forward this trend of celebration and feasting into the New Testament. Actually, if you want to track feasting throughout the scriptures, you can make a strong case that the first feast we see is Genesis 2, when God says to his people, eat everything almost that you see. That's a feast. And then he carries it through the Old Testament rhythms and rituals. And then Jesus gets on the scene. And the first miracle Jesus does is at the wedding. It's a feast. 
And then after that, Jesus has continual feasts with his disciples, so much so that the Pharisees of the day look at Jesus and say, why are you feasting right now? It's fasting time. And he says, because feasting is good, I'm here. And you carry that forward. And in Matthew, the latter part of it, he says, hey, the kingdom of God, you know what it's like? A big feast. And then the story of, of the Bible ends in Revelation 19.9. The angel said to me, write the following, blessed are those who, invited, who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. So this idea of feasting isn't just a one-off. It's not just for Israel. I think it's a perpetual rhythm and reminder of what God wants his people to do. And so we have to start by asking, what's the difference between feasting seen in Scripture and feasting as we know it? I think one, if you go to Leviticus 23, the whole idea, all seven feasts were grounded in the ritual of Sabbath. Sabbath meant rest. I think something we have to just up top differentiate is that when we have feasts, take birthday parties, take Thanksgiving, take Christmas, I don't know if it's very restful for us. There was one study that got published that looked at about 8,000 adults, and it says the results revealed that 71% of respondents are feeling some form of stress when thinking about the holiday season and dinners. And in contrast, 29% were just lying to you, okay? <laughs> so 29% said that they don't. So the first thing we have to talk about when it talks about feast is the idea that biblical feasting was a form of rest as we celebrated in and rested in God. And the second thing I think we see when we talk about feasting is it's a form of rest because God likes and loves our holy pleasure. And, and this is where we come to. So often I grew up in a, in a church in a faith that was um, good but legalistic, like most in the mid-90s in this country. And so I heard a lot about what not to do. And this image of God got formed in my mind that God really takes joy when I hurt. That God takes joy when it's hard because that's what's growing me. And you get that passage in James where it says, consider it all joy that you might go through hard things or trials or tribulations. I think sometimes take joy in your trials and tribulations gets translated into uh, God takes joy in your trials. That's just not true. I think we fundamentally, with this conversation of feasting, have to, have to, have to understand that God takes pleasure in your holy pleasure. And we had to find holy pleasure there. Holy pleasure is pleasure that not only extends the pleasure for you, but also the people around you. It doesn't come at the expense of others. And what we see in the feasting pattern in the Old Testament is a God who takes pleasure in his people when they take pleasure in the right things. There's a writer and professor. His name's N.T. Wright. He's an Anglican. I like him a lot. And he was a chaplain at a, <clears throat> a, 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 a college in England for a while. He said he'd go up to all these new students, and he would say, hey, I'm N.T. Wright. I'm the chaplain here. And they would say, hey, we're not going to see much of each other. I don't believe in God. And he would say, well, what God don't you believe in? And they would define this God they don't believe in, kind of like the one that sits up there and waits for you to mess up and takes joy in your pain and is waiting to punish. And he'd look at him right after that, and he'd say, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. We should talk, you know? And it's this idea that so often we've divorced physical pleasure from the pursuit of Jesus, and we can't do that. There are times when it's hard, but we fundamentally have to start with the fact that, that God loves when we are happy. Again, not a weak version of happiness that takes advantage of others, but God loves, he takes pleasure in our holy pleasure. One writer who wrote a book called Into the Table said, food is evidence of God's grace, variety is evidence of God's creativity, and abundance of God's generosity. 
One of the fundamentally most astounding things to me is that God decided not just to give us food, but to make it taste good, except for kale. He decided to give us food (laughs) and say, hey, an expression of my grace and goodness is not just that I'm going to give you sustenance that's going to remind you that you really need me, but I'm going to make it enjoyable for you. Think about that. Just the ability of God to care. The ability of God to say, I'm going to give you all of these things so that you might know that I take pleasure in your holy pleasure. And so when we talk about feasting, we have to start there. Just whatever baggage you come in with, unpack the fact that God wants you to love how you live. Again, not in a cheap, superficial way, not I'm going to give you all these abundance things kind of way, but he created life to be enjoyed. And we've fallen from that because sin entered the world, and it's a really long conversation. But feasting starts with us remembering that God wants us to love how we live again. And so he said, you're going to build this into your calendar seven times a year, regardless of whether the crops were good or bad, you're in captivity or not, you're having a hard time in your marriage or not, you're going to build into this the idea of pleasure because I take pleasure in your holy pleasure. It's a beautiful expression of how God is good to us. And sometimes it's lost. And so when you continue to look at the feast, you see a couple things about it as you look at those seven or even how Jesus talks about it. One is simply that when you look at the calendar of how the feasts were laid out, they were absolutely intentional. They, they happened at a certain time and a certain place. And so when you look at the feasting calendar, it happened around two sets of time in the year. The first one was around when harvest season started. The Passover was around then, the Feast of Weeks and the Pentecost, and all those were around the harvest season. You plant crops, you say God is good. And then after that, what you do is you'd come to the Feast of the Trumpets, and that's when the harvest season closed. And, and, you, and you'd blow a trumpet, and you'd say, now that the harvest season is done, we deal with what God's going to deal with for us, which is the sin in our camp. And that started a sacred time in the Jewish calendar when they would focus on God's dealing with sin. And that's when you have Yom Kippur, and that's when you have some of the latter ones that specifically deal with how they worship God as a sinful people. And so what you see is that the intentionality of the Jewish calendar laid out in such a way where they celebrated what God gave them and they celebrated what God did for them as he dealt with the goodness in their life and the grace he gave them. And it was intentional. It was intentional. It wasn't just something that happened passively, but something that happened on purpose. I think we live in a culture where we sometimes say we feast, but we feast passively. As my wife said when I was talking to her this week, it's like when you're not paying attention and the whole bag of chips is just gone. And I said, Sarah, that's a you problem, not a me problem, you know? I'm going to start hiding the chips in my house. It's the idea that we have to understand feasting is centering our life around celebrating God intentionally at certain times for certain purposes around what God has given us and the grace that God has um, shown to us through Jesus. And so we fall in these two camps. I think either we we feast all the time (laughs) or we don't feast enough. If we feast all the time, I love what Proverbs 17 says, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. If we feast all the time, it's not good for us. And if we don't feast at all, it's not good for us. There are times when feasting isn't appropriate. So that's why we talk about feasting and fasting in the same conversation this January. If you feast all the time, you're really no good to anyone else. <laughs> but if you never feast at all, you're no good at seeing the grace of God to you. And so we have a conversation about the importance of feasting because it reminds us of the goodness of God, central to who we are as God's people. Uh, Scott McKnight said it like this, we move back and forth between feasting and celebration of Christ's birth, ministry, death, and resurrection, 
and fasting and solemn hope for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So you have this rhythm in this calendar of feasting. You have this rhythm in this calendar of seeing God's goodness. And, and the first part was really about how they see the goodness of God in everyday life. And one of my fears is that because life in our neck of the woods is so good all the time, sometimes we overlook the goodness of God. I had a conversation years ago with a student of mine back in the day. And he said, Charlie, it just doesn't seem like God is being very good to me, to us. And, you know, I watched the news a lot, and he was in a hard place. It's adolescence. And, and I said, man, next time you go into the grocery store, look around and tell you God is not good to you. So often we get numb to the goodness of God because we live in a culture that, sees, that experiences the goodness of God so far and away above other cultures. One writer said that we take for granted the goodness of God compared to the rest of humankind, past and present. What we among the middle class in North America think is normal, running water, hot and cold refrigerated food, produce available all year in near inf infinite quantities, sugary confections to be had after and between meals, comfy clothes and beds, fine beers, wine and cocktails whenever we want them, meat at most evening meals, meat in our sandwiches, perfume bodies, etc. These constituted the very heights of luxury in the ancient world. What we, the middle class, think of as normal life is in fact swimming in luxury. The problem of feasting every day is we forget the graces of God to us. We had a conversation about it online on January 1st, and, and I love what Delenn said. She said one time she was sitting in a Jason's Deli, and she looked at her sandwich and just thought, what did it take for me to get all of this right here? Like all the ingredients and all the people and all the places, and she listed well over, I don't know, 30 or 40 ingredients and, and people that it took to get them there, and she was blown away by God's goodness to her. Most times we just eat a sandwich. <laughs> we forget. I remember... One of the times this hit me the hardest was we used to have a sister church in Haiti. And I took a trip out there, and it was the first night we got there. You know, I've been on a few mission trips. I'd lived in a third world country before. None of this was increasingly new, but Haiti is kind of a, a different ballgame when it comes to poverty than most other countries. And we're sitting down to eat dinner that night, and there's all the people in this village around us, and it's just, you know, us, our team of seven or eight. Um, and the table's pretty full, and the food is fine. Uh, it was goat, so it wasn't like my favorite protein because I live here, but most of the world loves goat. And we were eating it thinking, yeah, it's good. I, I, I think it's not the best meal I've had, but I'm glad I get fed. I was kind of hungry. And the, the missionary that we had done there said, this is more food than this whole tribe will eat in a week. And they're giving it to you for this one meal because they care for you. And right then I thought, the way I live is not the way that most people live. That's why missions is important. <laughs> It reminds us that our version of what we see of goodness here isn't necessarily everybody else's. It puts into perspective the grace of God in a culture that so often takes it for granted because we live in abundance. And that's not something we need to apologize for all the time. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm simply saying recognize it and give God its due. And so often we just take it for granted. Because living in the culture we do often leads to ungratefulness. It's, it's the one knock every generation has on the generation that goes after them is that you guys are ungrateful for everything I've done for you, right? It's constant. But here in this place, what feasting does, hopefully, if done well at appointed times, feasting reminds us that all that we have is a goodness of God towards us. Biblical feasting fights ungratefulness in our lives. It fights it because it forces us to remember that these things aren't accidents. They are the goodness of God that he's shown us on a plate. And what it does, when you think about it, 
is feasting, biblical feasting, is less about the food on the table and more about the attitude of the people eating it. They had a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It came right after Passover. I don't think anybody served a mound of unleavened bread and said, feast! In Israel, when that uh, feast happens every year, they take uh, butcher paper and they actually literally like roll over and roll off in the grocery store all the good stuff with yeast in it. It's not necessarily about the kind of food you get. It's more importantly about the attitude of the people who eat the food. So whether it's a huge spread or whether it's a teeny tiny communion cup with a thimble full of grape juice, the point is simply that it reminds us that God is good to us. It's less about what is on the table and more about the attitude of the people around the table. That's biblical feasting. And so it doesn't give us excuses. In lean years and not lean years, Israel feasted. In captivity years and not captivity years, Israel feasted because it reminded them of the, of the goodness of God toward them and it fought against ungratefulness. Two, I think when you look at feasting from a biblical context, it doesn't <clears throat> just fight against ungratefulness. I, I think feasting is a beautiful reminder of the inclusivity of God. So when you look at the Israelites in the Old Testament, there are certain disciplines that are individual, you know? Fasting is more of an individual discipline than a corporate one. You can do it corporately, but, but most of it is about fighting your flesh and, and finding God in that and saying, I won't be driven by my flesh, but rather the deeper, better things in this world that I desire. Feasting always happened corporately. Always happened corporately. Out of those seven of the feasts in Leviticus 23, you see three of them where you had to pack up your family and go to Jerusalem. And so we're going to do this with everybody else. The ones where you didn't do that, you invited your neighbors and your whole family and you sat down and you enjoyed the goodness of God in community together. Feasting by nature is something we do with those around us. And why that's important is because I think so often we try to define God by looking in the mirror. I think this is just isn't an us problem. This is an everybody problem. We've always tried to find God by how we see ourselves. And we need to be reminded that God's invitation to the table is far different and far bigger and far better than just the people that look like me. That's the problem of the Jews in the first century. They couldn't imagine that God would open his table up to anybody but Jews. They couldn't imagine the Pharisaical world. They couldn't imagine that Jesus would sit with sinners and tax collectors and non-Jews and extend an invitation to feast with them that was unfathomable to them. We might invite tax collectors to our dinners, but I still think, I still think, deep down in places we don't talk about, we want our God to look more like us than less like us. That's just arrogance. I think what feasting does is it forces us, when you look at the idea that they traveled places and they ate with people that were their friends and not their friends, that Jesus ate with Jews and Gentile, rich and poor, tax collector and non-tax collector, sinner and righteous, what it reminds us of is that the extent or the invitation to God's table in feasting is bigger and better than just us. Feasting is a beautiful expression of the love of God for the people of God in a world that so often tries to craft God around what I like, want, and need. Feasting reminds me of God's grace to me when I look at his around the table alongside with me and say, oh yeah, God is good. And we, we need that. <laughs> we need to be reminded that God cares for those that we might not like, that we might not have voted for, that we might not invite over to our house. We need to be reminded that God loves them too. That's what feasting was supposed to do. It's reminding them of the bigness of God <laughs> in a world that's always tried to make God more about me and for me than for others. So feasting fights pride because when we look around the table, we see God's invitation for 
all to come. Feasting is a beautiful expression of the bigness of the gospel in our world. It's bigger than just the church in America. It's bigger than just the church in Haiti. The mission of God is for the people of God in all of the world of God. And if I don't fight against that kind of pride that tries to make God look like me, then eventually he will. And so we need to be reminded that, that God's goodness is all the time and that God's gospel is bigger than just what I normally see. And that's what the Jewish people did when they feasted. They were reminded that God's vision for their shalom, their peace, was big. That included everybody. And they were reminded that God was good all the time. And then finally, when we look at the idea of feasting, I think feasting, like fasting, isn't just a one-time thing. I don't think it just reminds us of God's goodness right here and now and God's inclusivity right here and now. I think feasting is painting a picture of a promise to come, just like fasting. Fasting, kind of a negative bent, not negative bad, negative good. Fasting, you know, we yearn and lack things we don't have right here and now. Feasting is one of those things that says Jesus has come to promise us future hope. That's why in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law so that you might see the best version of what life with God looks like. It's not done yet. It's still to come. When we feast, we get a picture of the promise of Jesus to our world, the world that needs it. It's, it's a hope. This week, on Friday night, I had the first uh, date night with my wife in a very, very long time because we got kids and we don't have a kitchen and, you know, all the things. We're tired all the time. And um, so her sister was in town, watched the kids. We went to this spot in Dallas that was new. Do you guys know how many times I looked at the menu all week long? You know how many times I pulled the pictures of this restaurant? You know how many times I read all the reviews on Google? All of them. Not all of them. I want you to hear that because I was so excited. <laughs> For the food and my wife. I was so excited for the time we got together. I should have put it like that. You mean time? Um, but this is what feasting does. It, it, it reminds us that the hope we have is not just here now, but is coming. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus promises us. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And we live in a time when we see bits of it now, but we don't see it fully. And it reminds us that we don't see it fully, but we will. So feasting was integral to the people of God because it reminded them that God, like fasting, wasn't done with their world yet. That God was still good, that God invited people to join, and that God said, I'm still working. Even if life doesn't look like what you want it to look like right now, they feasted in all the seasons, in all the years, in all the Old Testaments, whether they're captives or freemen. This is, in, in Jesus' day, they're captives of Rome, and Jesus says, let's feast, because it reminds us of a time when you won't be captives anymore, when you will be set free. It reminds us of God's promise of goodness, that it's not done yet, that it continues, that it will one day encircle in, in, in your world and the earth. That peace will come. Feasting is not just for today. It's a promise for tomorrow. It's a picture of the goodness of the gospel. And sometimes we forget, and we need that. We need to be reminded that God's goodness isn't just for my Mondays, <laughs> but he's also got this picture of promise of what's to come. And we get to look forward together. We, we get to hope together, and it's a powerful thing when the people of God hope together. When we get together in a world that's hurting and say, hey, you know what? There is hope, and let me tell you about it. You know the best way that you see it? Come to dinner at my house, you know? Invite your friends. You might not like them. Probably not. Invite them anyway, you know? It's a beautiful picture of the goodness of God and the grace of God and the bigness of God and the promise of what the gospel is in the future. Feasting was central to the Jewish people. 
because fundamentally it was about seeing and sharing the grace, God's grace and goodness on purpose. <laughs> it was intentional. So as we are a people that feast, we want to purposely plan to see and share God's grace and goodness with those around us. And so we ask, what, is, what does feasting look like right here and right now? Well, I think a couple things. One, I don't think it's saying to your friend next to you, hey, let's go get the big Whataburger after service, all right? It's not necessarily it. We've missed the point in purpose. I think feasting is planning to have a meal. You can feast in other ways. We're talking about food. Planning to have a meal around the centrality of the goodness of Jesus and his hope for the future. When I think about feasting done well, I think about my friend Sharon. How many meals I had over at our house. And every time, every time I was over there and we invited others over, the table was always open. She'd always ask a question like, what is God doing in you, for you, through you? How good is Jesus every time? She's one of those people that when she said grace, it wasn't just because you think you should in the South. It was like, actually, let's give thanks to Jesus for this food. Like she meant it. And sometimes that was like me looking up being like, are we done? We're going, oh, we're, no, right? Yeah, let's keep going. Let's make this prayer longer. Food's getting cold, right? But it was this beautiful depiction of what it looks like not just to have a meal, but to plan a meal around the beauty of Jesus in our world. So, so what does feasting look like? I think it looks like us planning times when we can get together with people that we love and might not love yet, but will, and say, hey, this meal, the purpose of this meal is about showing you the goodness of Christ, understanding his goodness to us, and then sharing that with all those around us. Yesterday, we had a men's brunch, men's lunch. It wasn't brunch, it was 8 a.m. I'm a parent now. It's like brunch to me. I've been up for seven hours. Um, We had a men's breakfast yesterday, and it was awesome. (laughs) We haven't had them in a long time. A bunch of guys showed up, and we just sat around and said, where has God been good to you? What has God been teaching you? And I needed that because so often we overlook it in a culture of abundance. We forget the goodness of God to us. And as we come together and we feast together, it reminds us that not only do we pursue Christ together, (laughs) but it rounds out our picture of the goodness of God, how big and truly great it is, you know? That God takes pleasure in our holy pleasure, and then we take pleasure in those holy pleasures around us. So what does feasting look like? I'd I'd say start small and, and, and plan a meal around the person and work of Jesus. Invite some people from your neighborhood and your community, some that know Jesus and some that don't, and give God thanks. And then enjoy yourself. And that might look like community dinners once a month. That might look like one feast in July and one in December for you. You can fit it to your calendar, but I think it's important. It's important that we just don't have meals together, that we feast together. That we just don't eat together and enjoy one another, but we eat together and enjoy one another because ultimately it rolls up into a God who's incredibly good to us. I think it's important that we see and share God's goodness and grace to us. That's feasting. And in a culture that feasts all the time, sometimes we've forgotten the purpose of it. That God's worthy of it and how good and kind he really is to us. And that's why we're going to end with communion. Because what communion is, is a small symbol of God's goodness to us. It's an ongoing reminder. It's an ongoing feast, if you will. That's why Jesus took the Passover, one of their biggest feasts, that, that the Passover represented their departure from slavery in Exodus. It represented that God delivered his people finally from oppression and was giving them free freedom. It represented that Jesus comes and says, there is more. You are no longer bound by sin, but bound by my glory. It is a reminder that Jesus is freeing people. And so he took Passover 
And he said, I'm going to redefine this feast for you. It's no longer about Exodus, it's about me. It's no longer about Pharaoh, it's about me. It's no longer about you leaving Egypt, it's about you beating sin and death through my death and resurrection. It is a feast of my goodness to you through what I'm about to do. And so he said, every time you get together, you have a meal and you feast. Every time you have this Passover meal, he said, take the bread and break it. And remember that this is my body that's broken for you. It's my goodness to you. And it's my promise that I'm going to keep being good to you. Take and eat. And then he lifted up a glass of wine. And he said, this is my blood that's going to be shed for you. In the Passover meal, they, they shed blood of a lamb so that God's grace might pass over them. His wrath might not sit on them. He said, this is what my blood does for you. It's a reminder I've been good to you. It's a reminder of what I've given you. It's a promise that I'll continue to do that. So when you have this meal, when you feast together, drink and remember my goodness to you. May we be a people who don't just eat. May we feast. May we be a people who don't just have meals, but plan meals around seeing and sharing God's grace and goodness. That'd be a discipline, a practice of ours in a world that's lost the purpose of feasting in the first place. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for all your abundance towards us, especially right here and right now. We are a blessed people. I pray that doesn't go for granted, get taken for granted. I pray as we feast, it as we think about what it looks like in our world, as we plan some out, that it, it fights ungratefulness and, and that it fights the pride that we have in saying that God is for me and not other. I pray that feasting helps shape our view of your goodness and your grace. And then in that, others get to see it too. So Holy Spirit, show us ways that we can feast well in our world with those around us for the purpose that others might see and share the goodness of God as well. May we be a people that feast because we know the goodness of God. And we pray this in his name. Amen.